Well, grab your Bible. We're going to be in First Timothy in a few minutes. So you can go ahead and turn there while you're waiting. We are finishing up this morning our manhood, womanhood and marriage series. We saw last week that marriage is more than meets the eye. It is, in fact, a, a parable that tells a greater story than just the story here on earth. It portrays in crayon what will be seen in magnificent clarity one day in heaven, namely that of uh, the uniting of a heavenly groom and his bride, the church, us corporately. So at the end of last week, our, our hope was that we we grew in our respect for what Bonhoeffer, you remember, called that great post of responsibility that we've been set to in our marriages. Uh, you've likely uh, you've likely thought of other relationships in Scripture that uh, that display God's glory as well. There are others. God is seen as father that helps tell us something about his character and his love for us. We are viewed as his children. Tells us a great deal about the relationship. As fellow believers, we are to consider each other brothers and sisters in Christ. Isn't that amazing? It's a huge thought. It's a huge, huge thought. The parable of marriage. Here's the point. The parable of marriage that we examined last week. Okay. That marriage is more than meets the eye. It, in fact, in fact, flowers into an even greater display of God's glory. As we consider now that it that it breeds forth there is fruit from the marriage that we call family and it literally and figuratively births from marriage into a family which we get all those relationships that teach us much much more about god as father us as children uh, that we consider each other brothers and sisters in christ and just like human marriage produces sons and daughters and brothers and sisters uh, so it is the marriage between Christ and the church produces the fruit of many sons and daughters, many brothers and sisters. Amen. It should. It should. Why is that important? When God made man, he knew that Adam needed more than a helper suitable for him. There was more to it than that. It wasn't just that he he made Eve because Adam needed a helper. He had grander plans. He had a greater vision than maybe we have. He understood the mystery behind the parable. He understood that uh, in marriage and then through uh, the outworkings of family that would come through marriage, that he would further reveal himself to us through that through that portrait, through that painting. God was actually building a relationship that would say something to us of his glory, right? That our marriages and our families, him as father, us as children, all those analogies, all those examples, they say something to us about him and about, about his glory. Our marriages help reveal, as Preston alluded to in, in our, our worship time, the height and the width and the depth of God's great love. Our families and all the relationships that make the family further help reveal us, reveal to us that glory. Is that important? Absolutely. Without the parable, we all too often miss the point, don't we? Without the example. Thank God for for the crayon that he paints through our marriages and our families. Uh, the story of Scripture, if you think about it this way, the story of Scripture might be summarized uh, in this way, that it is God's revelation of himself to humanity. We could think of it that way. We need God to tell us who he is and, and what he's like, right? We need him to tell us. 
We, we can't understand who he is and what he's like unless he reveals himself to us, unless he, unless he tells us. Marriage and family, if you think about it, are his choice illustrations of Scripture that declare his glory to us, his children, his bride, his friends, as we sung about. See, not only do these help the believer understand something about God and his glory and his great love for us, which they tell us a great deal. It goes a step further and and using these and using us in these examples, he says something to our world. He reveals himself and his glory and his love beyond us. We certainly gain a greater understanding as we understand that that our marriages, uh, our marriages say something and they explain to us the great depth of God's love for us. As we understand that we are we are family and we are brothers and sisters, we're called to love one another as family and that that love we have for one another, it is actually the evidence to the world that, that God is who he says he is. And his glory, his glory is to be honored. And he uses us in that way. It's important. It's important. So to conclude our series this morning, I'd like you to consider the fact that not only, not only are we in Scripture uh, the bride of Christ, believers, but we are considered his family. Isn't that, isn't that a good picture? We're not only his bride, but we are his family. First Timothy three, Paul refers to the church as, quote, the household of God in verse 15, the household of God. In relation to God, we are we are the bride in relation to God. We are his bride in relation to each other. However, we we're family. We're family and it should work as such. And as you might imagine, the family of God Uh, Just like marriages of God need structure, right? They need organization. They need direction. Uh, Let me ask you, after looking at the role distinctions of of men and women, husbands and wives, these almost nine weeks I think we've we've taken to uh, go through this series. After looking at those, what do you think we're going to see in regards to how God would organize his house, his church, this organization? What do you you think we're going to see if you had to guess? At least a system that is compatible with the system that he's designed for your personal home, right? At least a system that's compatible. You wouldn't expect to find all we've learned about manhood and womanhood cast to the side now that we're working in the church, would you? You'd expect that it fall all in line. Uh, Let me say at the outset, as I was thinking about this and preparing uh, and coming to the conclusion of this series... If we could, if we could somehow as believers um, build it into our worldview that our lives serve a greater purpose than just our own selfish ambitions and our own fulfillment, that our lives serve a greater purpose, namely that they say something about God. They display something about his glory, his love for for not only us, but all humanity. If we could build that into our framework of being into our worldview for life. Well, I imagine we wouldn't have quite the struggles we have in gender equality. We wouldn't have the struggles we have in, in marriages. We wouldn't have the struggles we have in, in the home. Or, as we're going to look today, the household of God. God's house. God's family. We wouldn't have near you know, the struggles. But here's what happens. When we claim center stage in life, when we claim center stage in any of those areas in life, we, we actually block the one who we're... We're supposed to be drawing attention to. Yeah. 
<laughs> we get in the way. When we, when we play Lord of the Ring, we want all attention focused on us. Life, life spins out. Life works based on us. And us is the center. Us is as Lord of our life. And as long as we live in the flesh, uh, we have as a responsibility to live the John 3.30 life. That, that he must increase, we must decrease, that he must become the Lord of the ring. He must become the center and the focus that our, our being center stage doesn't, doesn't backstage him. That we don't block the view of Christ who is to be glorified, who is to be displayed. If we could build that into our worldview, that our life is not about us predominantly about us taking center stage. It's about it's about Christ being center stage, the glory of God being center stage. Then wouldn't all this stuff kind of fall into place? I think it would. I think that's why many of you might find uh, all or some of this that we've spoken of in the last several weeks to be uh, very acceptable. And understandable and somewhat easier. Because. There are some of you who have placed God at center stage and not your own self, not your own desires, not your own five year plan, your own 10 year plan, your own retirement plan. God is center stage and everything in your life works out from there. See, when that's the case and when that's the case, all the stuff that we talk about, you know, we try and we try and focus on the home and marriages and what does this be a man and woman? That, that stuff sort of, sort of falls into place. That's the very reason we'll look at this in the next series. That's the very reason that our number one priority is our relationship with God. That everything else kind of works out from there. That it becomes clearer and easier there. It makes, it makes sense. It makes sense. It seems to me that as we wrap up this series uh, with a look at the structure of God's house, the church, <laughs> it should almost be obvious to us what, what we're going to find. Right? I mean, after all these weeks of looking at what God has designed into manhood, what God has designed into womanhood, what he's designed for marriage, uh, this message should almost preach itself. I, I should almost just be able to say, uh, expect more of the same. Thank you. Have a good day. Uh, scripture doesn't leave us there, though, and so we won't leave you there. Uh, but when we come to First Timothy 2 and 3, as we will today, uh, we really shouldn't even bat an eye. Those of us who have, have placed God at center stage and, and don't have a life that tries to take center stage and take that attention away and try and work out our own plans that God is center and everything works out from there. Uh, you really shouldn't bat an eye when we come to now looking at the structure and the system of the church. It should just fall right into place. It should be exactly what we expect. In short, uh, it should be uh, our assumption that men are to be, in some sense, the fathers of the church. We would expect that. If we didn't have a passage to go to that would say Something along those lines, we should we should expect that that would be the natural flow of where we've been in Paul's mind. Uh, it would make as much sense for a woman to be an overseer of a church as it does for her to be a father in a home. Right. It would make as much sense for her to be overseer of God's house, God's church, as it would for her to be a father in a home. And that's what the passages. That's what the passages infer. That's what they that's what they say. But uh, it's interesting if you think about it, what happens in our society, a society where um, a society that decides that a man can very easily replace a woman in her role as wife or mother and that a man could very easily do her job just as well as she could. 
or that a, a woman could just as easily do a man's job in the home as husband or father, just as easy as he could. And uh, that we don't necessarily need one or the other. There is no real difference and that we could just put two women or two men together and it can it can work just the same, if not better. We might say and our society has gone that route, right? Our society has gone that route. In that we've gone that route predominantly in our society. Uh, it would it would be the natural next step to carry those philosophies over into the church, wouldn't it? It'd be the natural next step to carry those philosophies over into the church. And, and why wouldn't you? Because the church and here's what we're going to see in Scripture. Here's what First Timothy is going to say. The church is patterned. The structure of the church, the system of the church is patterned after the home. And so if if roles don't matter in the home. And thus, this is the reason we've spent all this time looking at roles and why there is a difference and how there is a difference, what it means, what it doesn't mean. But if there are no distinctions as the role of the home, then guess what? There shouldn't be any distinctions as the role of the church. And we get what we got, as we talked about a couple weeks ago in Minneapolis, we get a whole denomination saying, uh, blanket across the, across the board, that it doesn't matter. Sexual orientation doesn't matter. Male, female doesn't matter. Uh, we can all do an equal job. Some can do better than others. And we give the best man the job or the best woman the job. And the truth, however, is that men and women are equal, but we're not the same. Right. That's what we've been building to. We're equal, but not the same. We saw how that plays out in the home today. We're going to see how that plays out in the church. A man should be. In the home, husband and father, a woman should be in the home, wife and mother. And so in God's household, guess what? Men are to be men. And we're going to see that they are to be the overseers of the church. We're not going to flop. We're not going to flop systems here just because we move from the home to the church. They're not going to contradict. They're going to complement each other. They're going to work together. Now, remember, just as we said uh, regarding men and women in general, and as we said in regard to husbands and wives, just because a man is called to a specific leadership or oversight responsibility, that doesn't necessarily mean that he is inherently more gifted or able than women in general. Right. We already we already got rid of that notion. It doesn't it doesn't mean that necessarily. In fact, as I told you before, there are there are women here in this church that could teach the socks off of many of the men in this church. That's not that's not the point. But again, what we say is uh, what we say is the best man or woman gets the job. What God says is, is that there's more to it than that. What Scripture says is there's more to it than that. It's not just about giftedness and ability. It's about what he's built into our, our very bents, our very nature as men and as women. He knows that at some at some depth of a level, there will be conflict. If we just get rid of all the differences. God knows that talent and ability doesn't trump the divine bent he's put into each of us. The life of the church never overthrows, but rather enhances the life of the family. Okay, that's where we're going. The church and the system thereof never overthrows the system of the family. It actually enhances and enforces the system of the family. You aren't going to have a system in the church that would conflict with the system of the home. Well, where do we get this? Let's go to the word. Where do we get this? The idea that men are to be responsible in the church as overseeing God's household, his family. First Timothy two and three is uh, is a good place to start. That's where we'll uh, we're going to take a brief look this morning. Look at a, a verse I quoted earlier in chapter three, verses 14 and 15. Paul wraps up a section here on the organization of the church. 
in 3, 13 and 14. He's closing out uh, a system or a passage of the organizing system of the church. He's talked to men, women. He's talked to, uh, to us about elders and he's talked to us about deacons and qualifications thereof. He's talked to the church in general. And as he comes to the end, I want you to see the phrase that I quoted earlier. 14, I'm writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. But in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to, ought to, ought to excuse me, conduct himself in the, you see it, the household of God. The household of God. And that's just not a, it's not just a chance parallel. That is to be the way we live and act as a group of believers. We are brothers and sisters. Flip over to chapter 5. Let me show you another verse. This is used all throughout Scripture. Paul uses it throughout here, uh, speaking to Timothy. Timothy, chapter 5, 1 and 2. Do not sharply rebuke an older man, but how should we treat him? We appeal to him as a father, to the younger men as Brothers to the older women as mothers and the younger women as sisters in all purity. We are to we are to move in the church. We are to act in the church as a, a very literal family. That there were more than just partners. We're more than just in this thing together. We are brothers in arms. We say that often here. We are we are joining and locking arms with one another. That that if you don't see each other, there should be something in you towards your brothers and sisters in Christ that longs to see them as you do with any family that you haven't seen in a long time. All right, so go back here. We're going to start in 1 Timothy 2, verse 9. And uh, Paul, who's writing here to Timothy, the leader of the church at Ephesus, uh, he's, going to, he's going to counsel the church here. And uh, we're, going to, we're going to deal mostly here with 9 through 15. Because chapter three gets into the qualifications of overseers, elders, and then on to deacons. And uh, we've we've looked at that already here. And so I'm not going to take the time to go over those qualifications again with you. If you if you missed that, we did that back uh, in Titus and you can go back and find those messages online. Uh, But we've looked at those. What I want to show you this morning is the uh, what is sometimes uh, seen as a chauvinistic or controversial passage out of the mouth of Paul. But I want to show you that it is a very positive passage towards our women and that, in fact, the system of the home carries over and complements the system of God's house, God's household. So look here in verse nine of chapter two. Likewise, he says, after addressing the body at large, I want women. So we're talking to women here in particular to adorn themselves with proper clothing. So he's going to talk about just ladies, what we look like. What we look like in relation to the body of Christ when we come together. And apparently there might have been uh, an issue with this in Ephesus. Uh, We know that he had an issue with it or that there was an issue in Corinth. But apparently there was an issue with this that he feels is uh, worth addressing. He says, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing. And he unpacks what proper clothing is in his heart and mind. It's. Modesty and discreetly clothed, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly garments. And the point there, don't get hung up on the individual pieces. Okay, don't think you got to turn in your earrings or you can't braid your hair, etc. All right. We talked a little bit about this uh, a couple weeks back in another passage. Uh, Don't get caught up in the particulars. It's a general attitude that we're dealing with here. All right. It's an attitude that says, ladies, uh, that I want to draw attention to me, that I am center stage so to speak. 
And that's not how we are to be. He uses a passage like this, or Peter says something like this in first Peter. If you want to flip over with me, first Peter three, there's some other language that Peter uses that is much like this in the home. And so you're going to see a carryover from the home, same language. And then when we go back, uh, you're going to see that it parallels in the church. He's not asking for anything different, ladies. He's asking that that system carry over into your relation to the body at large. Chapter three, first Peter, in the same way, you wives be submissive to your own husbands so that even if any of them are disobedient to the world, that they may be one without a word by the behavior of their wives. That's a great verse. We have not dealt with that. As they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Again, we're, we're, we're talking about the attitude here of our our women, our wives. Verse three, your adornment. And here's the parallel must not be merely external. That's the point. Braiding of the hair, wearing of gold and jewelry or putting on dresses. And, and none of those things in and of themselves are necessarily bad, Paul would say, or here Peter would say. But it's the attitude. Respectful behavior, not merely external, but let it be, verse four, the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. Ladies, you want to know what God wants out of you as a godly woman? There it is. As a godly wife, there it is. Not to be concerned predominantly, primarily with your externals, but that there is something precious deep within to God. Verse 5, for in this way, in former times, the holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And that's a great story. It's a great example. Back to Genesis 18. You remember the story where Abraham and Sarah are are told that uh, they're going to have a baby. Abraham, uh, Sarah overhears the angel telling Abraham that they're going to have a child in their in their latter years. And what does she do? She just kind of laughs. She laughs and she says, you know, am I going to have a child uh, as old as I am? And then in the midst of her. Of her chuckling, she calls Abraham her Lord. It's a great example here of just the willingness. It's not it's not a uh, it's not pressed upon her is the point. I think Peter could have used many examples here. But he chose Sarah willingly submitting, even in that odd situation, that difficult situation. She refers to Abraham as Lord. Now, rather, don't don't start asking Tracy to call you Lord. That's not what we're saying here. The point is that Sarah came up with that all on her own. That was her attitude. That was her heart. Calling him Lord and you have become her children if you do what is right. Ladies, you can become just like Sarah, he says, if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. It's not it's not out of fear that Sarah called Abraham Lord. That was her attitude. That was her that was her bent towards being godly and submissive in that relationship. Flip back to first Timothy. So we see that uh, verse nine is not is not unique. It comes even from the home and it carries over into the church. Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modesty, discreetly, not with braided hair, gold or pearls or costly garments, not focused on the external, we could say. Verse 10, but rather, here, here's, what, here's what should mark your life, ladies. But rather by means of good works, as is proper for women, making a claim to godliness. And that should be something we all seek, right? Ladies, if you seek a claim to godliness, well, this is what it looks like. 
It looks like the good works that come from within that are obvious to those who watch. And it's not the externals. It's not it's not how you dress. It's not it's not the clothes you wear. It's not how your hair is. It's not that you are all that impressive necessarily on the outside, but that those who are watching see you and they know your good deeds. And you're godly for those reasons, for those reasons. And he goes here and he begins before again, we get to the qualifications of the elders and deacons, etc. And he's going to say some things uh, which could be uh, could be pretty bold to some of us. Verse 11, a woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. Again, remember that we're talking about in the in the context of the church, in the context of the body gathering together. A woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. But I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain. And there you see the word again, quiet. And some of you, that word is just rubbing you. Let me let me show you. Uh, let me show you another use of that word that will help explain maybe what that word means and what it might not mean. If you go back up in chapter two, the word is used again in chapter two or in verse two. In verse one, he says, first of all, then I urge and in uh, that with entreaties and prayers and petitions and thanksgiving uh, be made on behalf of all men for kings and all those who are in authority so that we may lead a tranquil and you see it same word quiet life in all godliness and dignity. That's the goal. Godliness and dignity in, in this verse in respect to the world. That's the goal. Godliness and dignity. That's the goal, as we've seen for you as well, ladies in the church from the home. First Peter to the congregation, to the house of God. That's the goal. Godliness and dignity. That's what it means to lead a, a tranquil and quiet. Same same word. Verse three, this is a good and ex, this is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So now if you use that same word and the same idea of it doesn't mean that we keep silent. It doesn't mean that we never say anything. It doesn't mean that we have nothing to say in this world. But there should be a general disposition or attitude among all believers towards the world that conveys what? Godliness and dignity through what? A tranquil and quiet lifestyle. We're not troublesome is the point. We're not we're not causing trouble. We're not wreaking havoc. We're not we're not thorns in the flesh of this world. Constantly rebelling against the authority of this world, constantly picketing, constantly, you know, uh, slandering. The general attitude of the world looking back at us should be that we are we're generally easy to get along with. We're we're tender. We're gentle. What that says is that we're godly and there is dignity in that. Next verse says it's good and acceptable. Now, you carry that attitude down into the. To the verses we're examining this morning, a woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. The point is that she carries with her, just as she does in the home, she carries an attitude that is meek and gentle. It's not disruptive. It's not argumentative. To be quiet doesn't necessarily mean that she never has anything to say. In fact, that, that, that's not the testimony of Scripture as a whole. Uh, flip over to Acts 18. I want you to see this. It's worth... It's worth you seeing Acts 18. There's a there's an occurrence where, uh, well, the preacher himself is called out by, in fact, a woman and her husband. Acts 18, verse 24. 
This is on Paul's third missionary journey. There's a guy named Apollos. You remember him being mentioned in Corinthians? This is where Apollos comes into play. Verse 24. Now a Jew named Apollos, an Alexandrian by birth, an eloquent man, came to Ephesus, and he was mighty in the scriptures. So he's a good teacher. 25. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in spirit. He was speaking and teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus, being acquainted only with the baptism of John. So he may have been lacking in some areas. Verse 26. And he began to speak out boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. This is just one example. Is there a time and a place for uh, the women of God, godly, dignified women to correct even those who are leading in the church? Yeah. You notice that, that it, they didn't stand in the synagogue and say, look, you're off. OK. I think there's something to that example. And there are others where we find that there are there are women who who minister alongside Paul, alongside Timothy, alongside Apollos, alongside Jesus. Uh, if I could preach one more message in this series, it would just be examining Jesus relationship to women throughout the scriptures. Christianity has done more for liberating women in culture than anything else in our world. And that's overlooked. Jesus was radically for women in the culture he lived. Unashamedly for women, even before other Jews. He was called into question for his speaking to women, teaching women, the woman at the well. That wasn't a normal situation for a Jewish man to be speaking to a woman, using women as illustrations in his teaching. Uh, women are used over and over. You find them as partners in ministry in the New Testament church. Uh, as Paul's doing his work, as the other as the other apostles and, and disciples are doing their work, you find over and over in Scripture that there are women who support them and they're elevated and they're honored in the epistles. Right. And so we find here that uh, even Apollos, uh, there was a time, there was a place, there was a way. She was not expected. To let Apollos go on in uh, his error. She found the right way and she found the right time. See, there's a way, there's an attitude, there's a disposition that Paul is looking for here in First Timothy. A woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. That, that's an attitude. It's an attitude of submissiveness. She's not a troublemaker. She's not looking to, to disrupt. He says, but I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. And I've said this before, that it doesn't mean that she can't teach doesn't mean that she does not have the gift of teaching. All of the gifts given in Scripture are given to male and female alike. The difference is, the difference is, not all the gifts are to be used at all the times and places. It's the attitude sometimes of how they're used and the timing sometimes of where they're used. Specifically here he says that there's an attitude we're looking for in our women in the church. And there cannot be an attitude that disrupts or is not submissive. And we're not going to find that there will be a, a, a system where women are given to the overall oversight teaching of the church. And he's going to come back here. Let me jump to it. Verse 15. And he's going to say that there is a way, ladies, there is a there is a way that may be greater than what I do from this pulpit that you teach and you lead. In regard to our young men, 
He says, verse 15, but women will be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. Part of that, what that means is, and Paul does this over and over in any of these passages that seem to be controversial. He always he always ends with, but listen, and he always makes sure that that the woman does not get put on a level that that God would not intend her to get put on. And so he comes back in this verse and says, but listen, um, ladies, uh, even though, as he says in 13 and 14, you had an integral part in the fall. And even though that carries over into how the system of the home works, and even though there is some there, there is some carryover into how that how the system of the church works. Listen, he says uh, there is there is a grand plan for you. This is a beautiful verse. If you think about that, uh, that a woman might in in her relation to Eve carry in her. Uh, some of the responsibility, maybe the primary responsibility, although we've argued that Adam was right there alongside Eve in the garden. Uh, but as Eve took up the primary responsibility to lead and make that decision to go ahead and eat the apple, uh, we find that in some sense she takes the primary fall of the fall. Right. She takes the primary responsibility of the fall. That's a heavy weight. That's a heavy weight that if if now the curse comes down through Eve based on what Eve did to all women, which it does. Right. You carry part of that guilt, so to speak. You carry part of that responsibility. Paul's not going to leave you there. God's not going to leave you there. He says, listen, you actually you actually come full circle in that in that the race falls. Now that every seed that comes from you, Eve, is fallen and sinful. You ladies have an opportunity, verse 15, to raise up a new seed. You have an opportunity to actually Grow up a generation of men and women uh, that are godly, that follow him. It's a beautiful picture. Verse 13, Paul uses a, uh, an argument we've seen before, right? Verse 13, for it was Adam who was first created and then Eve. He goes back where? To creation. The order of creation. God could have done it a number of ways. He chose to do it a certain way. And that's just one of the aspects we looked at that says something to the primacy of men in leadership in general, in the home, and now is carry over into the church. So there's a reason God did it that way from the beginning, even pre-fall. He goes on in 14, and it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Now, this is a tough verse. Historically, this verse uh, could be interpreted to mean that, ladies, you do not get to... Uh, Fulfill the leadership role either in the home, but specifically here in the church, because historically speaking, some would say that this verse says that you are more gullible when it comes to being deceived in the areas of doctrine. Now, let me say this. Uh, that could be true. All right. It's hard to argue with that interpretation. It could be true. Historically, that's been that's been the stance that most have held that there is in some way there is in some way. Uh, that women are more gullible when it comes to being deceived doctrinally. Okay, let me say, and I would agree with uh, John Piper's interpretation of this, that even if that is even if that is true, even if that's how we interpret this verse, that in some way, ladies, you are more gullible when it comes to being deceived uh, doctrinally. By example, being deceived by Satan was Eve. Okay, if that is 
true. We could also say, and I think we could fairly say to level the playing field here, that this is not a this is not a condescending verse. It's just a matter of fact, because, guys, we are, in fact, more gullible in many ways than women are in different areas. Right. And we fall to deception, spiritually speaking, uh, more quickly in a number of ways than women do. All right. And uh, I won't give you statistics on crime, but I could. Majority men. I won't give you statistics on pornography, but we could. Majority men. There are many ways that we fall victim. We, we are, in some sense, more gullible to the wiles of the devil than women are. So, ladies, don't take this as, uh, as a demeaning verse. It's not. Uh, I would say that there is a possible uh, alternate interpretation that it, although it might mean that in some sense, Ladies, you might be more gullible in that way, spiritually speaking, doctrinally speaking. Uh, it, it could be, as John Piper and I believe John MacArthur would say, it could simply be a reference to that flop of responsibility that Satan attacked, not the leader, but he attacked the supporting role. He attacked the helper suitable for Adam. He didn't go to Adam, who should have made that decision, do we eat, do we not eat? Who should have led in that decision. Do we eat? Do we not eat? In fact, it's a further reference simply to the fact that Satan, Satan, that was the place he attacked. He attacked the very design that God had put into place before the fall. That there was a design by God, divinely inspired, that, that the man should take a initiating leadership role. And Satan, he said, I'm going to go right around that. And so the case here would be that we're not going to continue to let Satan do what he's done from the very beginning. Men, you have to you have to take your role. You have to take your responsibility. You can't sit idly by as Adam likely did. There is a anytime you teach, anytime you teach uh, passages, when you look at passages like this or even teach series like this, uh, there is a common response that, uh, well, if I. Uh, if I can't be an overseer, if I can't be a pastor or elder, if I can't fill that role in the church, then what can I do? All right. There, there are some who would respond that way. Ladies, not you, but there might be some in other churches. Uh, as if that's the only role in Scripture we need filled. If, as if that's the only role in the household of God that we need filled. If I can't do that, well, what can I do? That's the attitude. You see the silliness in that? Um, There are hundreds of roles and thousands of ways that we need, both male and female, to step up and take responsibility in the household of God, to play their part in the family of God. Uh, I would add to that, I would add to that, maybe as a word of comfort to you ladies, if your heart is for a ministry, that being a pastor, elder, overseer, whichever word you want to use, um, often keeps you from ministry. And that's just the truth of it. Uh, Being devoted to the teaching of the word puts you in a study closet more often than a soup kitchen. Being responsible for guarding and governing a flock often puts you in a conference room instead of a hospital room. If your concern really is ministry, which I suspect it is, if your concern really is ministry, there's plenty of work to be done. If your concern is to be center stage, well, then we, we've got a general wrong attitude from the from the beginning. And your attitude, your, your issue is not with the system. 
It's with who's in charge of the system. If your concern really is for ministry, there's plenty of work to be done. Don't get caught up in the fact that there is this one thing that God has said, I need men to take responsibility for in the church. There are numerous, uh, I couldn't even begin to give you the list, things where we need you and we, we need, literally, we need you to step up and take, take a role. Yeah. Well, let me, uh, let me give you a word of encouragement here, specifically to the men, because as I've, uh, as I've reflected on this series, uh, men, if, if we are granted by God an initiatory or a primary responsibility for the oversight and general uh, responsibility for the health, et cetera, of the church or the home, of life in general, I would argue, uh, if we've been given that weight of responsibility, all right, then, and then it seems I want to... It seems to me we ought to end encouraging you, challenging you, okay? And here's how I want to do it. I, I want to reflect on uh, what Scripture gives us as our motivation, as our example to being those kind of leaders. Um, inasmuch as we are the leaders of the church and are to parallel the roles and responsibilities of men in general and husbands specifically, uh, it seems to me we ought to love Christ's bride as Christ loved his bride. Okay? That's both challenge and encouragement to you, men who would be leaders. And this is it. Ladies, let me tell you, this is the very reason uh, that I began this series calling our men together outside of a Sunday morning on a Sunday night and saying to them, listen, quote, I'm about to ask our ladies to follow us a bunch of boneheads who don't deserve to necessarily be followed. There's nothing innate about us that makes us worthy to be leaders of our homes, much less God's home. Okay? So we've got to step it up in some ways. Guys, I'm going to end in that same place where I began. That, man, if we have that responsibility, if we're going to say some of these bold things in the next eight, nine weeks in front of our ladies, we better, we better, we better feel the weight of the responsibility and pray to the God of heaven that he makes us the man he wants us to be. So let me end, let me end there. Um, Romans 2.4 is an encouragement that uh, hit me square in the in the forehead in uh, in our life group this past week. By the way, if you're not in a life group, uh, if for some reason you've said you know this new life group format of having guys and ladies, and I you know I want to go with my wife, etc. I want to go with my husband. Uh, if for some reason you've not got into a life group, I'm just going to tell you I had the best discussion in a life group that I've ever had this past week. And we were talking about marriage. We were talking about our wives. Men talking about hey, where do we need to do a better job? had one of the best discussions in a long time. Okay. Uh, This verse, Romans 2, 4, uh, it came to me in that meeting as a reminder. It says that it's the goodness of God. It's his kindness that leads us to. Do you know what it says? Leads us to repentance. All right. It leads us to repentance. Here's the principle. That it's God's goodness, his loving, his love that causes his church, his followers to respond to him. Now, men, if he is our model and his love for his church is our pattern, then guess what? What should those who we lead have to say about us and our leadership? They should have to say about us, Romans 2, 4. As my wife looks at me in our home as husband and father, she should be able to say about me. It's his goodness and it's his kindness that leads me into whatever. 
repentance, obedience, whatever it needs to happen. The general attitude should be that I'm going to do my part because look at how good he is. Look at how, look at his kindness. That's a challenge to us. Song of Solomon 2.4 is also another one of these. Solomon's bride. Remember what she says? She says he set me at this banquet, this table. Great picture of the marriage supper of the lamb, I think. Uh, he set me at this banqueting table. And uh, this is all analogous to God's love for the church, Solomon's love for his bride. And the bride says this, right? She says this of Solomon. She says, the banner that he carries over me, right? And the banner is a reference to the authority. So it's a military picture. The, the, the marching orders that we have, the king that we march for, the authority that we march under, that we live under. She says, he set me at this banqueting table and the banner over me is what? Anybody know what it says? Love. The banner over me is love. The, the authority that I'm living under is love. Hey guys, it, it occurs to me that that ought be, that ought be what, our, what our ladies say about us. That it's not out of duty that I follow this guy. It's not out of guilt. It's not out of shame. It's not oppression. Their motivation to do their part in the home, to do their part in the world, to do part, their part in the church ought be that they see that they're not being they're not being drawn by guilt or duty. They're being drawn by cords of love. Paul would say in Corinthians that we we are compelled by the love of God. That's what causes us to respond to him in obedience. Let me read to you first Peter five and then we'll be done. First Peter five. These are Peter's words of admonition to those who would be leaders in the church. I'll just read it. You listen. Therefore, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ as a partaker also of the catch this, the glory that is to be revealed. <laughs> what, a, what a responsibility. Shepherd the flock of God. It's God's flock. It's not yours. Flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God and not of sordid gain, but with eagerness. You're doing it for the right reasons. You're doing it with the right heart. Now listen to this. How do we do it? Verse three, not by lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of that glory. You younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders and all of you clothe yourselves. Watch this. With humility towards one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Remember what I said earlier? If we had this, if we had this worldview built into us, that we are not Lord of the Ring, that we are not center stage, then the glory of God would not be overshadowed. We would not be blocking the one who is to be center stage, Christ. So what are we, what are we looking for? We need, what do we need to accomplish everything that we talked about in the last nine weeks? It seems to me that we need this, this general attitude of humility. This general attitude of humility. Not the pride that puts us center stage. But the humility who recognizes that God is to be glorified in all of our life. In whatever role we take up. And that it's about him. It's not primarily about us. And that we get to be in charge or that we get to do this or we get to do that. It's all about what he's trying to accomplish. 
It's about what, what is more than meets maybe the eye sometimes. Yeah. Let's pray. We'll be done.